Welcome back. Welcome to Decision Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Jake Friedman. And I'm Brendan Hansen. And this is the podcast about decisions in games. And today we're talking about mechanical artifice, a new concept that Jake and I have come up with to think about how games work and how we engage with them as players. Uh, We'll talk about this concept, give you a bit of insight into what it is, what it does to how a game feels to play, and also how it impacts the decisions you might make in those games. Also, hopefully by the end of this episode, I'll still have some semblance of a voice as my voice is still slowly but surely recovering. And if not, Jake will just close it out strong as the only one talking during the episode. And I'll sit here quietly nodding along, which will be great podcast content. Yeah, that sounds perfect. I, I would say your voice does sound better. And you know, maybe this will help some people who have a hard time telling our voices apart. Uh, Brendan is the one who's losing his voice and the one who makes the bad takes. I'm the one with a strong you know, voice and usually the one saying like the smart sensible things on the mm. podcast and you, i'm the one with the good, fair? the good jokes i'm just kidding i think you know <laughs> we both have good takes and bad jokes and bad jokes yeah yeah, yeah exactly so, yeah, yeah boom okay and i think we just bore out at least that latter point um <laughs> but anyway for our pre-planners those who like to play games along with us you should know that the next game we'll be covering on this podcast will be blood rage Maybe next week, maybe the week after that. Um, so look forward to that. Get your plays in now on Board Game Arena. Just don't do it asynchronously because it, <laughs> it's a drag. You will rage. Yeah. Okay, awesome. Another thing that I'm really excited to announce for, for those of you who have been listening to a few episodes of Decision Space now, or maybe you're longtime listeners, you remember that we have a website. And on our website, you know, we talk about episodes. We have a a listing for every episode. We have a nice game index that you could go on and you could search, uh, find games that we've covered that you didn't even know that we've discussed. But we also have a really cool section called articles where we publish different articles that either um, I, Brendan, again, for those of us who have our voices confused, confused, which has been a hot discussion in our Discord, we should say. This isn't apropos of nothing. There's been a lot of feedback recently in our Discord that Jake and I sound exactly alike and might even be the same human. So we just wanted to spell that. Again, this is Brendan talking, not Jake, Brendan. Okay, so on our website, articles by myself and Jake, uh, and also community members. So we kept kicked off the article section uh, with a really neat article uh, on Seven Wonders Architects, looking at the decision space of that game by Aurora. And I'm really pleased to announce that uh, Jim D'Ambrosia has written a new article for the website uh, titled The Decision Space of the Game Monopoly. And it's a self-explanatory title, but a really, really interesting article that takes a look at a game that Jake and I probably never would have discussed on the show uh, and basically looks at, at the whole decision space, the game arc of Monopoly, using a lot of the tools and lenses that we've developed on the show over the course of the past two years, and does this phenomenal job of sort of talking about Monopoly, its history, uh, and really the game at a a serious uh, competitive level, which I thought was really interesting as someone who played Monopoly a fair amount growing up and hasn't really played Monopoly in probably two decades. Uh, I found it really, really interesting and uh, an insightful read. So that's on our website now. You can go to decisionspacepodcast.com, click on articles, and you will see Jim's article there. 
Uh, it's phenomenal. Thank you to Jim for writing it, and I hope you'll read it. Uh, and I'm sure if you do, it'll give you some really interesting insights into Monopoly, but also just decisions and games generally. It's a nice, quick uh, five to 10 minute read. I, I think everyone who reads it will really like it. Highly recommend for me as well. And we'll also include a link to that in the description of this podcast. I personally am not a big fan of Monopoly. However, America version of Monopoly Special Edition, whew, that's something else. What is it? Wait, what? I'm just kidding. Does it come with real dollars? I'm just Googling like Monopoly <laughs> I, theme. And that's nice. the first one that came up to make it Monopoly Cthulhu. That's People awesome. have just been, we've just been like saying the need for more Cthulhu themed games. Monopoly Dune. And then we need more Dune themed games too, actually. Okay. But okay. it's a really good article. I think that there's uh, one thing that I really admire about it is that I think there's a lot of games that we cover on the show have a really similar arc in terms of decisions. Uh, and Monopoly, because of its vintage, has this really different arc that sets it apart from, I think, modern games in an interesting way that reveals something both about its decision space, but also about the games and decision spaces we typically talk about in a way that we might not have unpacked or gotten into if we were just talking about modern games designed you know, in the last 10, 20, 30, 30 years. So really insightful. Take a look. Uh, yeah. Monopoly bass fishing. Anyway, yeah, do take a look at that. I'm making jokes, but I think it, you you'll be surprised. Anyway, this is Jake here, and I'm going to be the one transitioning us into the next topic. And that topic is mechanical artifice. Perfect. Yeah. So, Brendan, are you ready to kind of get into this main discussion? We've sort of mentioned it on the podcast before, and I think it was clear that as we were talking about it, then that we didn't have a real firm understanding of what exactly it is. I'm not sure that we at the top have a perfectly clear understanding between us either, but it's my hope that over the course of this episode, we'll just kind of talk it out and see you know, what the merits of this new sort of framework is and if we think it could be helpful for talking about games in the future. Yeah, awesome. I think that this episode for listeners is going to be us at the top of the show, sort of defining mechanical artifice, laying down uh, a definition, talking about maybe some implications that we suspect could be the case about games with high mechanical artifice or even games with low mechanical artifice. Uh, and then mostly the episode will be us talking through game examples and trying to come at the idea from different angles, but using games to inform that. Uh, so I'll say at the outset, the definition that Jake and I have been going with for mechanical artifice is that this is a, a quality, it's an aspect of games, a quality that games can have uh, that can be high or low, and it's the number of systems between a player and what they want to do in the game. Or I would say maybe even not the number, but the robustness of, of systems between a player and what they want to do. Um, it's not necessarily a, a, it's not a good or a bad thing about games. You know, it's not a value judgment on games. Games with high mechanical artifice aren't better or worse than games with low mechanical artifice. It's just a feature that games can have. And I think that that's really important to state at the outset here. Yeah, I think so. And maybe it would be, it would serve well to just give a few examples of how that might look just like right at the top. And let me, let me try just to make sure I'm understanding what you're talking about correctly. So. In one game, just coming up with like a toy game, maybe you've got troops on a map and you'd like to march three spaces forward. Uh, a game with low mechanical artifice, you might just be able to march one count one, two, three, and you move your troops into that space. 
a game with higher mechanical artifice might require you to uh, pay a certain number of resources for every space that you move, uh, may require different uh, types of uh, troop specialties, depending on the types of space like you're going into or through. Um, maybe you have to upgrade a certain thing in order to move through the water space or cross a river, build a bridge, so on and so forth. And all those kind of like systems between you moving <laughs> and, and actually you know, taking that action uh, would represent mechanical artifice. Yeah, perfect. I think that's a really good example, Jake. And I'll give another simple one too, to just add on to it. So your example of like in a game with low or no mechanical artifice, you want to move three spaces, you get to move three spaces. And maybe a mechanic of a similar game would be like, you have a Moncala system where in front of you are these little uh, cups and you're moving boot tokens and you only, you know, maybe there's three colors of boots in the game and you only get to move the color of troops who match the final boot that you put down, right? Like maybe you, then you get to move your blue boots. So there's a puzzle between what you want to do, move your troops and what, and how you try to do that moving them. So I think anytime that there's a, a level of abstraction like that or a, a puzzly element that you're trying to overcome, that's an example of mechanical artifice. Totally. Yeah. I think another way of thinking about it really quickly is it can be thought as restrictions between the player and the player's objectives in the game. It's just like a way to say the same thing slightly differently. I think one thing too that I'm keying into right off the bat is I think when we're thinking of mechanical artifice, as we've just defined it, we're talking about taking actions sort of like internal to a game system and not necessarily zooming out to, okay, well, what I want to do in this game is to win. And then that just sort of makes everything in between you, you know, and realizing that goal of winning, it sort of like it make, turns the whole game into mechanical artifice to, to that goal of winning or to that goal of getting points. Or to that goal of, you know, getting first place in the race. You know, whatever the victory condition is. And I think maybe that's true. But when, when you zoom out to that macro level and look at games from sort of the treetops, it's just not helpful. Yeah, we kind of get into what a lot of people use as like a core definition of games is overcoming uh, obstacles. Like that's that's a really simple definition of a game that some people will try to use sometimes. And I think that you're exactly right, Jake, that we're we're trying to focus in a little bit more closely. And I think that's why we've honed in on this idea of systems specifically as being a good stand in, because I think especially uh, I think a game with high mechanical artifice almost always will have more systems than a game with low mechanical artifice. Uh, there might be exceptions to that that people could come up with, but I think on average, that's going to tend to be more true because as the number of systems increase, the room for relationships between those systems increases. And that means that in those relationships, there's more potential for mechanical artifice, right? The more things that you have to take into account, the more things that you have to plan around and for to accomplish what you want to accomplish in the system. Would you say that like typically have like this correlates to like the light versus heavy scale of game complexity my supposition is that it doesn't fully capture mechanical artifice but in general you're going to encounter a lot more mechanical artifice in games that are tend to skew heavier on that spectrum i think that that's true and i think that when we get into some of our examples what we might find is there's definitely good examples of relatively light games 
with mechanical artifice, but it's usually one system that's bringing the game together. And it's sort of playing out the exploration of this one idea, whereas heavier games tend to have more systems. So the mechanical artifice is sort of spread across multiple systems. And it's sort of about the interplay between them. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that I think that makes like a, a lot of sense. The also, more the more rules that you have in the game that is typically I think is going to represent mechanical artifice in some way. Like sure. in the example I gave of like a troops on a map game, you know, I think war games are sort of famous for having and, and uh, you know, I'm not an expert in this genre of games at all, but they're famous for having just a lot of rules. Yeah. And the more you get closer to trying to like simulate what troops actually do as they're moving on a board, it gets more difficult than moving three spaces, right? You're talking, okay, you have to expend equipment and you have to have, uh, you know, or you need, you need to have the right equipment. You need to have the right vehicles. You need to have the supply lines that are, you know, transporting food and oil to your troops in their location and in new location. And like all of that is things that are getting in between you doing what you want to do, which is like move north three spaces. Sure. I think anytime that we say like, you have to do this to do that, where it's a good sign that we're like on the right track of like being in a space with higher mechanical artifice, right? Like, or if you if you're sitting at a game and you're like, oh, how would I even accomplish that? It's probably because the game has high mechanical artifice and you're trying to navigate multiple systems that are between you and that objective. Right. Totally. So some implications of games that have the high mechanical artifice, I think that these games typically feel a little bit more puzzly uh, or they might emphasize planning a little bit more because you're trying to essentially solve your position as you explore those spaces or you're having to link together multiple moves to accomplish a, a great a simple goal within the system so it's going to spend maybe you're going to be more prone to uh, analysis paralysis as players are trying to tease out either how to accomplish what they want to accomplish or the most efficient way to accomplish what they want to accomplish in those games to add to that brendan i think it definitely does make them feel more puzzly, but I think it's more of like a heads down puzzly mm. versus a, like a heads up puzzly because, right? I'm thinking about like chess as a yeah. game that feels a lot of times the game state is quite puzzly and you want to like think many moves ahead to try and figure out what to do, but it also has like really low mechanical artifice, right? You just can move your piece do what everyone as, do as you do. want to on your turn um, compared to. You know, something like, I don't know if this is a game we're going to be exampling later, but I don't know, like a, a heavier Euro game, a Bonfire by Sevenfells, one we've been playing recently, where, you know, to do various different actions, there's all requiring you interacting with different subsystems of taking fate tiles and like adding them to your board. And that's a little puzzle that's going to allow you to take more actions more frequently and you want to do so efficiently. Uh, and then to, you know, go to a little island, you have to have the right fate tile, but you also have to have the right resources so that you can, you know, expend to pick up the, uh, I don't know, bonfire from that island and then put it on your little personal board, like so on and so forth, right? That's all, yep. like, I'm looking down at my board and I'm just trying to figure out my way to take the action I want if I can. Yeah, that's really interesting. What would be an example, Jake, of heads up puzzly? What did you mean by that? I guess I was, I was thinking of a game like chess um, mm. where, you know, you are 
for all, and, and maybe this isn't how puzzly is normally used, but I mean, if you the way people play chess at higher levels, as I understand it, is you know they're not just thinking about I'm going to do this. They're thinking like I'm going to do this. That's going to force my opponent to do this, so that I'll do this, and then they'll respond uh, by doing this, right? I so, see. I see the difference between like teasing out uh, an immediate problem versus the teasing out of like if I do this, they'll do that. Then I'll do this. Then they'll probably do that. And solving sort of the implications more so than how to accomplish it. Right. To me, that's not mechanical artifice at all. Right. That's I agree. That's like player engagement compared yeah. to like Dice Hospital that we talked about last episode. That's like, you know, extremely far to me on the end of like heads down puzzly. Right. There's and nothing think- interrupting my ability to like solve my worker placement puzzle to the best of my ability besides me. Sure. And one example of mechanical artifice in that space is uh, in that game of Dice Hospital is like the there's certain spaces that can only heal certain values or certain colors. Um, so that is like a small example where the game is like putting up a, a little obstacle that's increasing the mechanical artifice slightly and getting in the way of how you're going to accomplish solving this puzzle. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the final thing that I'll say about mechanical artifice is not always, but I think that there's when a game has higher mechanical artifice, I think that there's a, a potential for an increased sense of player mastery where the first time you play the game, you're going to feel you have to learn. Typically within these games, you have to play the games to learn how to play the games uh, to some extent. And low mechanical artifice games can be this way as well. But I think that really quickly with high mechanical artifice games, once you learn how the game works, you all of a sudden feel significantly better at playing the game. It's That's interesting because I don't know that it, it's maybe mastery. We could be more specific and say mm. that uh, it has like a higher skill floor, right? Mm. Like you have sure, to sure, sure. achieve a certain level of mastery to like get to that skill floor. Yeah. Um, but I don't know that it necessarily like mechanical artifice inherently means a game will have a higher skill ceiling. In fact, that's something I typically tend to associate more with like the high player interaction games. I think you're right. That's really well put. The mechanical artifice games on average, because typically mechanical artifice is the product of more rules have a higher skill floor. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so now let's get into some of the examples, Jake, and just sort of talk through them. I think we should just try to have a really sort of natural conversation. We can stick to the notes as much as we want to, but see what we can tease out of some of these ideas. So I thought there might not be a better place to start than a game that we've covered on the show uh, that is a a pretty divisive game, and that's Keyflower. So this is a fairly complex Euro game. Um, and one piece of feedback that you typically hear from people when they talk about Keyflower is there's this like subgroup of people who enjoy Keyflower, but what they often say is, I really like Keyflower, I want to play it more, but I wish they'd take that logistics puzzle out of the game. Um, so the logistics puzzle in Keyflower, Keyflower is a game where uh, basically you're building this little village in front of you, and part of that is that you're generating resources, and then you're trying to u- then you use different uh, worker placement tiles that you added to your village to move resources around. And then you also use those same tiles to upgrade uh, specific tiles once you've moved resources physically onto them. And then you might have end game scoring where you only score certain uh, tiles if you've moved resources that you've accumulated onto them directly 
Um, and then to add to this, uh, you can use any tile in anyone's board. Um, so I think the logistics puzzle in Keyforge is, did I just say Keyflower? Keyforge? Yeah. Keyflower is a really perfect example of a of mechanical artifice because you can imagine a version of Keyflower that sort of strips out the system and it reduces the mechanical artifice tremendously, but it's also a really different game. The sort of pacing and flow, the interaction uh, would probably change a lot because these worker placement spots that you everyone starts with that are allow you to move resources and upgrade tiles if you meet certain conditions become these sort of bottlenecks in terms of player interactions in almost every single game and they're really important in terms of the pacing and how players compete um i have another key flower example okay yeah can i i'll add that and then you can respond to them both is that okay, is that okay? sounds good another yeah. example is in Keyflower, everyone is dealt three uh, three tiles at the start of the game, and these tiles are their winter scoring tiles, but they're not really your winter scoring tiles. They're winter scoring tiles that you may elect, uh, and you to add to the pool of tiles in the in the final round of the game. So in the first three rounds of the game, the tiles that come out are random, and in the last round, players choose between one and three, uh, one, two, or they play, can play all three of the winter tiles they've been dealt to add to the shared pool. So you see these tiles, you have this privileged information, and maybe you plan a strategy around a specific tile that you're dealt, but you don't own this tile. It goes out to the middle, and anyone could, could potentially... Uh, try to claim that tile for themselves. Keyflower is also an auction game, so you bid on tiles with workers. So part of the mechanical artifice in Keyflower is for winter tiles. If you see one that you want, you plan around it, you play it out to the center, and then you you don't own it yet. You have to get it. Uh, you have to win the auction for it. Once you've won the auction for it, you have to add it to your board. So there's this whole level of planning around something that you might not even ever get. Yeah. I think I, I'm like struggling a little bit with Keyflower because in some ways, you know, it's like, okay, I want, I need to get some gold. Yep. And I can just like, okay, I can just, if I have gold in my village, I can claim it that way. If I want, if my opponent has it, I could just claim the gold from their village too. So like in some ways, the game kind of just lets you do it. Where I think like for me, the mechanical artifice there is more in a like, the logistical puzzle of like actually laying down your tiles. Like you have to make sure like your roads make mm. it so that you're kind of close to, you know, where you need to deposit the gold from where you're generating the gold. Uh, you know, so a, a, a less mechanical artifice game would be like, okay, you can just use whatever gold you produce. You don't have to move it over there to then score points off it. Um, but I think maybe uh, the biggest piece is just how the like, auctioning works with the workers you know i but yeah i don't know i i can respond to this please respond okay so i think that on average worker placement as a mechanic and keyflower like half the game is a worker placement game right tends to be pretty low mechanical artifice as yeah. a mechanic, right? Like I put this thing here and I get this thing. I get the thing, yeah. Yeah, that's like a low mechanical artifice mechanic that gets included in a lot of games. But the other half of Keyflower is that logistics puzzle. And mm -hmm. then they add a wrinkle to the worker placement too, which is that there's four different colors of workers 
in Keyflower and you always have to follow color in a, in a location. So I think that's a yeah. little bit of mechanical artifice that gets added to the worker placement puzzle. And then we're going to complicate it a little bit more because actually there's a hierarchy of colors, red, blue, and yellow workers. Oh, those are basic workers. Those come out whenever, but there's also green workers that are special workers that you only get from specific tiles. And when you place on those tiles, you also you can place with a red worker, but then you always have to trade a yellow worker to the bag to get a green worker. And when you bid with a green worker, then everyone yeah. else, when they bid on it, right? So like, I think that's why you're it. coming yeah. up on Keyflower being like, oh, it feels low in this way because the worker placement mechanics are pretty low. I put it here, I generate this. But then yeah. everything supporting it is a pretty high mechanical artifice. Yeah. So I that's why that, people- I think that makes sense. So when people say like, I want Keyflower without the logistics, they're saying, I want Keyflower. I want the decisions of Keyflower, the strategic decisions of Keyflower without the mechanical artifice that makes the tactical part of the game too crunchy, too too yeah. rigid for my taste. I th- and I think you do feel it in like, like Keyflower is a game I would describe that has a high skill floor. Like yeah. it takes a long time to internalize a lot of that stuff. And I remember when we reviewed this game, you know, I'm Jake, I'm the key hater. Yeah. Um, I kept feeling frustrated, like, like, okay, I'm playing this game and things seem to be going well. And I, oh, I just got like tripped up by like, you know, something that seemed small in, in how I laid out my village because I hadn't fully internalized, you know, the tile sets or what could be coming out in the next round of the game. Um, and then, yeah, all of a sudden it's like, okay, well now I can't, it's now all of a sudden it's just like a huge pain in the ass to transport my gold across my village or, oh, like, I've spent a lot of time to upgrade this tile and then somebody else just like took it, getting all the benefits of it. And it's sort of like, and now I, or now I don't have the green workers to do it. So yeah, all those ways where it's like, I can't do what I want because like, I don't know this game well enough is yeah. I think that that's probably a telltale decision space feeling that will come up in games that have high mechanical artifice. Definitely. This is another good example, right? Like anytime you find yourself in a game saying like, oh, I should have done this a few turns ago, it could be the product of mechanical artifice getting in the way. It's not always, but it could. Not always. Yeah. I would be careful with that, I think. Yeah. It Um, could be though. It could be. Should we talk about another worker placement game? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. You take this one, Jay. All right. So this next game we have listed is A Feast for Odin. And this is one that we have listed as medium in terms of the mechanical artifice scale. Um, so I think the high mechanical artifice comes in when you're putting your tiles into your personal player board allotted space. And there are all kinds of rules associated with that. For example, you can't have two green tiles touching each other, uh, but you could have a blue tile touching another blue tile or touching a green. You could put blue tiles anywhere. Uh, you can put... Uh, or inside your main hut space, um, but you can't put, uh, I don't know, food. So the orange and red tiles, you can't put those into your main hut. You have to put those into like your food stores or use those specifically for the feast. So all those kind of rules that make it so this like internal central mechanism of the game of like, I'm trying to fill up my board in this spatial puzzle is just a little bit harder uh than the game saying like get tiles and put them in your board yeah yeah definitely i think that one thing that's really interesting about a feast for odin uh so again this is a worker placement game where you have a personal player space uh and that and a shared board all of the worker placement stuff is pretty low mechanical artifice like jake was saying there aren't even really 
I guess there's a few spaces that have costs associated with them or like you need to have this to use this space and then it improves it. But it's usually really clear what you would need and also really clear how you would get it. So that's low. Uh, but like Jake was saying, there's like so many rules around how you can carry out the puzzle of tiling out your board, filling it up. But I will say one one trend that I think we'll see is sometimes there's uh, these sort of like rules that inherently are pretty strict uh, and have high levels of mechanical artifice. So like the tile rules that Jake just mentioned do that. It makes how you engage with your board sort of complex. But then there's also this rule that you can, the game has these uh, one square coins. There's also this rule that like you can just put a coin onto your board and fill up any space. And I think that we'll often see games that are sort of like medium to high mechanical artifice will bring in these rules that sort of decrease it in some way as sort of like a release valve on the system to reduce frustration. It's not a good idea typically to be using your money that way, but you can do it. And it's a way for the game to sort of like lower that skill floor a little bit and say for newer players, like, okay, if you find yourself in a bad spot where you've kind of mismanaged your money and tiled in a sort of bad way, don't worry. You can fill it in and get caught up because there's this other key rule in A Feast for Odin that I think increases the mechanical artifice uh, of the tiling at your bird a lot, which is you always have to fill in. Um, basically, you're filling in your board from the bottom left to the top right, and you always have to fill in the the sort of squares below where you're currently at. So there's not a good way to explain it without like visually showing it. But that one rule adds to the mechanical artifice quite a bit. And the being able to play coins anywhere kind of saves players from getting too caught up on that rule. Yeah, it's interesting because like also, I think it's a great comparison with Keyflower where it feels so much less rigid because the worker placement spots are like, so generous in a sense mm. right like you can you, you maybe aren't always gonna be able to do it the most efficient way but whatever you need to do in a feast for odin you're probably going to be able to do in some way some form or fashion whereas in Keyflower, when like the mechanical artifice says like oh you need to do like xyz in order to do that like those that XYZ might just be totally unavailable and like blocked off to you because you didn't do a good enough job planning ahead of, t- ahead of time. So it's interesting. I don't know if that means that mechanical artifice is necessarily higher in the other in Keyflower than it is in A Feast for Odin, but more so it's like more important. Mm. If that makes sense, you know what I mean. More important in Keyflower. Yeah, like like the mechanical artifice of what you need to do in order to, you know, yeah, produce and, and score points is more important in, in A Feast for Odin because, like, in A Feast for Odin, if you're doing a poor job of, like, efficiently filling in your board, like, you, you're, this, it's kind of the same result in both games, which is that you're not going to win, but, like, A Feast for Odin, you get to, like, do more and have more fun still right you Mm. can like i don't know i see what you're saying i think you're you're sort of getting at the fact that keyflower because of where it puts its mechanical artifice is a more rigid game and more rigid experience than a feast for odin which in a feast for odin there's lots of little affordances that uh the design allows players 
to basically when you couldn't meet certain criteria to still like participate in the core loop of the game by playing that money down or by taking a more expensive version of a certain action uh, that exists on the board. Exactly. And I think where I'm struggling is like, how does that fit in with our definition of mechanical artifice where it like, it does feel like in a feast for Odin, it's easier to go the three spaces North, right? There are more ways to do it. There are less restrictions. Uh, it's like there are more ways to do it, but there might be the same amount of restrictions on how to do it, if that makes sense, yeah. as there is in Keyflower. But there's like less, you have less tools to get around them in Keyflower. I think that from what my perspective on that, Jake, is that the ratio of systems with mechanical artifice in Keyflower to the number of options you typically have on your turn is higher. So like the footprint on them in the decision space is just bigger in a game like Keyflower because they impact so many uh, more of the decisions that you're making. Whereas in Feast for Odin, if you don't want to engage with the systems that are pushing back and trying to get into your way, there's typically a way that you can get around them. Like in a Feast for Odin, those blue tiles that let you break the rule of not having to not place color tiles of the same color next to each other, you can just go, get mostly blue tiles and yeah. fill in your board with them. You're not going to do as well as if you didn't do that. Um, and that's so that's a product of like the again, like there's just more ways to be like to heck with it. I'm not dealing with these like these artificial systems that are trying to get into my way. I'm going to get the thing that lets me break the rules that are in right. that spot. So I think it's a product of like the scope of each of those decision spaces. Like there's just so many more options in a feast for Odin. And some of them are options that let you break the artificial boundaries in front of you, which just those there's little versions of that in Keyflower, uh, but typically they're like a boat that you have to win in an auction to get, and it might right. not even appear in a specific game and only you can use it. And so to you, you're saying that, that means less mechanical artifice is present if the game gives you more tools to get around it. I think you experience the mechanical artifice more in a game like Keyflower. I don't yeah. know if like quantifying but it in that way. Here's a here's a like a toy game example. Okay. okay. Right, you've got a troops on a map war game yeah. that it requires many steps to be able to move your troops, okay? Just envision that. And a lot of those things cost money. Okay. In game A, you start with $100. In game B, you start with $1,000. Like, are, are, in your mind, does game B have less mechanical artifice, all other things equal? And it's like strictly the all, okay, it's strictly the same, all other things equal. I think yes, because you're, the amount in which you have to consider that limited resource uh, is strictly less on you in game B than it is in game A. So it's the the mental, the complexity budget, like how much you're spending mental bandwidth trying to factor in the money is just so much lower in game B that it, money represents a significantly less of an obstacle in game okay. B than game A. I, I think I can get behind that too. And yeah, and I think maybe like kind of a way to think about it is how much that like, now I'm struggling again, but like something about like, okay, the skill in navigating the mechanical artifice is going to be high, you know, more important to the outcome of the game in game A than game B. Yeah. And therefore, you know, we say that it has higher mechanical artifice on this scale. Yeah. 
it's more it's more so we're maybe not saying like how much when we say high medium low we're not saying like how much mechanical artifice is in the game but, but how we're, impactful. we're saying how impactful exactly yeah. i think that is more helpful yeah i think that that's a really important distinction though and maybe we should linger on this a little bit longer jake because what your toy game example of like a hundred dollars worth a thousand dollars the another way to think of it that we could put in even more definite terms are like how often is the player going to run out of money in the game mm-hmm. right so like if with the $100 version, if you're going to run out of money 100% of the time, that's going to be a huge barrier. In the $1,000 version, if you're never going to run out of money, then it's not a barrier at all. If you don't right. even have to consider it, that like if you Maybe have it's not infinite, a thousand, but it's like a hundred million. Yeah, yeah you have yeah, infinite right, money. Exactly. Like, yeah. sure, the mechanical artifice might be technically higher. But it's not really as experienced by the player because it doesn't matter. At that point, it's not even like, I guess it is mechanical artifice. It is this like extra thing affixed to the system. But like if if it's just a toy, like if neither of us will ever run out of money as we're actually playing the game, we just won't do that. Like as mm-hmm. players, like I'm just functionally within the real world. We just wouldn't interact with that system, right? Like, right. I'm not going to do that. You're not going to do that. No one who plays the game will do that. So it just gets forgotten. So I think it has to be meaningful within a game. And I think most things in most games are meaningful, but not all things in all games. All right. That makes sense. I think that gives me a better understanding. Okay. Okay, Brendan, we are going to go and do some more game kind of examples here on the second half of the podcast. But let's just take a quick moment. A couple of friends of mine have recently put out a single with their band called The Flash Floods. Uh, great guys. They're in my fantasy football league. And, you know, they you know, were asking us to play and stream their songs. So I thought, hey, I've got a platform that I can share this out. I think it's genuinely good. So I'm just going to play 30 seconds of that. And I just invite you all to listen along with us if you think it's good. I know they would really appreciate it if you check out their band and stream their song on Spotify. So I'll include a link to that in the description of this podcast. That was I Don't Want to Know by The Flash Floods. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. And let's get right back into the conversation about mechanical artifice. Well, really quickly, I just want to say that I was blown away by how lovely this song is, Jake. Uh, you sent it to me and I was immediately like, how does Jake know all these amazing musicians? Because Hembry, uh, the people who do our intro and outro song are also personal friends of yours. So if you're trying to differentiate between Jake and I, Jake's the one who's a, a strong musician magnet and I have no musical friend. And then I'll also say this song's a complete banger and I really want them to release more songs because it's literally just a single. It's the only song of theirs on Spotify. And I'm no, no, they, to it, they have other they have songs on Spotify. They, oh, yeah, they, they have another album out, but I know they've got a new album coming out soon that this okay, song that's is really be on. exciting. 
That's yeah. such exciting news for me. I can't wait to check it out because I was looking. I wanted more. So the fact that there's more that I can go back to, that's very exciting. All right. Well, let's jump into the next game that we have here, uh, which is Emotep. And I guess this is an example of a game with low mechanical artifice. Do you agree with that? I, Th- let's talk about Emotep first. That's, yeah. Let's talk so about e- Emotep. Another game that we've uh, covered on this podcast is a game about loading up boats with rocks and then delivering those rocks to one of five different spaces on the board, essentially. Um, And I think this is a great example of kind of what I was talking about when I was thinking like heads up puzzle, Mm -hmm. right? This is a game where you're, you know, you, you always on your turn can just do whatever you want in that as long as it's like one of the two things that the game or three things the game allows you to do, which is get more rocks, put a rock on a boat or deliver a boat to one of the five sites, um, which is how you get points. Um, and I think like almost all of the consideration there, there are very, there are a few considerations that I guess could be considered mechanical artifice. Like you have to have at least two rocks on a boat. Uh, total among players before you can send it off to a ship or a place unless it's one of the boats that only has room for one rock um so i guess that's mechanical artifice uh but you know rocks get unloaded in the order that they uh, were loaded up in i guess that could be some mechanical artifice but not very much really what you're considering is like okay i want you know what are my opponents going to do if i put this rock here is, is that going to go to, you know, location A, which is bad for me? Or will it will other people choose other accents of loading up boats or getting more rocks, meaning it'll come back to me and now I get to choose where this boat goes and I can put it into a place that's like very advantageous to me? I think that one thing that I'm realizing while we're talking about Emotap, this really cool Phil Walker Harding game, is that there's this like you mentioned this at the outset of the show, like all games have some bare minimum level of mechanical artifice that make them a game. So someone listening to this might be like, but Jake and Brendan, you can't just put your rocks on spaces. First, you have to load them into boats. Isn't that mechanical artifice? And like, yes, but that one element is literally the one thing that makes it a game, right? Like if you take that away, it's not a game, really. I mean, I guess it's kind of a game, but it just so barely is a game. I mean, that's also saying like, I mean, that is taking the treetop view because at that point, that's just like, how do I get points? Right, right exactly. Yeah, and it yeah. is, yeah, sure. There is mechanical artifice in between you playing the game and get getting points. Yep. But that thing in between you is like playing the game. Playing the game itself, yep. So I think that this is a really good example because beyond that, you can almost do anything. Like the color of, of rocks in this game, of stone that you're trying to get in certain locations, uh, is bound to the player. It's not specific, right? So unlike a game like Keyflower, which has different colors of meeples uh, that all do and can mean different things contextually, uh, that gets stripped away in Emotep. Your color doesn't matter. So it's not like you're trying to get a gray stone to this location in this spot. That would be mechanical artifice. Here, your gray stones are just your stones. You're trying to get them to this spot. And the second it gets to that spot in this location, it's scoring this amount of points. Uh, there's also cards in this game that actually strip away the little bit of mechanical artifice that there is and just like let you basically put stones wherever you want, almost in some cases, where it's like you can send a boat immediately or you can 
uh, load multiple things into a boat. So it sort of skirts around them. It's interesting that you mentioned chess here again, Jake, because I think that what is interesting about Emotep isn't navigating its systems. It's navigating what other players want in the game. It's trying to figure out what you want and how I can use that to my advantage and make sure that I can sort of like leverage the actions you'll take towards accomplishing what you want for a little bit of my own benefit. And chess is kind of like that too. It's trying to figure out how you can subvert the benefits of the that your opponents are trying to create with their actions and make the most of them for yourself. So I think we'll see that theme come up more and more that these games that feel like they have low mechanical artifice become more about navigating uh, player choice and maybe games with higher mechanical artifice become about navigating complex systems. And I think also one thing that we pointed out in our review of Emotep is that it's like a fantastic family game. And part of that is because the skill floor is so low, yep. right? There's almost no move you can make in Emotep that's a bad move. That's not going to be giving you some points in some way. Uh, it's just about, you know, finding the moves that give you slightly more points, uh, you know, just incrementally more on each move throughout the game uh, that separates winners from losers. So again, I think that's a, another clue in the low mechanical artifice game. Let's jump into the next one, Brendan. I'm curious on your take on this, because this is a party game, kind of a word game uh, that you know and love, listener, as code names. Talk me through how you see Mechanical Artifice in this game. This is really interesting based on sort of the conversation that we've had, Jake, because now I'm starting to realize that maybe this is an example of... It's tough. This is an example where like the mechanical artifice is the game, but maybe it's not enough for it to matter. So what I was thinking with this example is in code names, there's a grid of words and you're on a team and you're trying to get your opponents to guess specific words. But to do that, you can only ever say a single word that links all those other words together and a number, which denotes the number of words that you're linking together. So those are the sort of like uh, artificial constraints that you've put on the players, the, the barriers between them and what they're trying to accomplish. But I think based on the conversation that we've had, this is actually not a really good example of a game with yeah. uh, high mechanical artifice. It's just like meaningful mechanical artifice that creates the game. And without it, there's not much of a game there. Like if I could say a sentence to you, I could get you to guess every word that I want. Yeah, right. Like I want to tell, like the words I want you to guess are you know, grasshopper and princess. Yeah. What I want to say to you is like the words that you need to guess are grasshopper and princess. <laughs> you know sure. what I mean? Exactly. And so anything preventing me from doing that is inherently right. Mechanical artifice. That's saying like, okay, well you can't just move three spaces North. You have to work a little harder for it. But at the same time, I agree. Uh, that is also the entirety of the game. Um, so yeah, it's, it's interesting because like code names or like just one is another example of this where it's like essentially like a one rule game. Yeah. And it, it's hard for me to see like a one rule game. I mean, not exactly, obviously, cause there's like scoring consideration, but like take just one It's maybe even a better example in that you just write one single word, um, to get the guesser to guess the clue. And if anybody of the people who are writing words write the same word you have to erase them both um so that's obviously like that's mechanical the mechanical artifice there is that you know you can't again you're writing just one word um that's the game and then the other part i don't think that's really mechanical artifice 
I think that maybe what one thing that came to mind about a low rules complexity game that could be different than that is a game like No Thanks, Jake. So No Thanks is a party game, kind of. It's like a card game in which basically uh, you are given a certain number of chips at the start of the game and you're trying to have the lowest points possible. It's like a reverse auction. A card comes up and you either have to take the card or put one of your chips on it. Um, this to me is an example of a game with like basically no mechanical artifice. Uh, the game is about evaluation. So yeah. to me, that's a game with really uh, simple rules and no mechanical artifice as compared to a game like Codenames that has really simple rules, but one little piece of mechanical artifice that sort of makes the game pop. Do you think that that's a fair sort of juxtaposition I, to make? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I guess I do think like there is, yeah, No Thanks is also like basically a one rule game. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I do think there's less mechanical artifice because you know there's yeah you're not like there's nothing in there that's saying like you can't just do exactly what you want to do um, I, where I there feel, is that in just one or there is that in code name yeah i mean i you know i guess like what you want to do is just say no thanks and not put down a token on it but that it would be approaching like every single rule is mechanical artifice is that yeah, something yeah. that you think is true now that i put that out there i think i'm trying to create a distinction that's a little bit more useful than that to yeah. some extent you know like i think we have to mean something a little bit more specific than just talking generally about rules because there's something different between a rule like you may only say one word and one number and a rule like okay you start the game with 10 chips and you're trying to get the, the lowest number like there's something different in the way that these restrictions are shaped uh, between no things and code names that's interesting and i think captures that idea of mechanical artifice and that's why i'm like wanting to tease it out so yeah. no i don't think all rules are mechanical artifice okay i agree with that and also i think this example of these like lighter games it, it is just evidence to the fact that you're more likely to encounter this and more of this this being mechanical artifice in medium weight and heavier games sure and probably yeah. you know I might even go as far to like make the claim that like a lot of the reason that uh, people who are not gamers in the hobby can kind of like bounce off some of these like heavier games uh, might be because of like frustration with mechanical artifice, mm. right? When you get questions like that are like, okay, well, I want to do this. Like, how do I do it? Yeah. It's, that means like they're encountering challenges with mechanical artifice. Yep. Um, that they're probably not used to if they're just have played, you know, the super light mass market games that probably go out of their way intentionally to appeal to that market by eliminating this as much as possible. And I think that that's a really, it's, I'm really glad you brought that up right at this specific time in the conversation, Jake, because I think that helps draw the distinction between like why this like tiny little bit of mechanical artifice in code names is different than mechanical artifice in a heavier game because of the burden on the player, right? We're going back to the, like the war game example now in the money where like the footprint of how complex uh, it is to remember the rule in code names is so low that it doesn't feel like a system it's not that much between you and what you're trying to accomplish. Like it, it might be hard to get you to guess eight words at a time. Like that might be difficult, but I know what I'm supposed to do. Like I know what I'm kind of trying to do at yeah. the very least. I think that might be another distinction. What about the mind? Oh. See, like I think that's exactly the same example, right? Like so that is the code is names like, example. 
So that's mechanical artifice because you can't be the mechanical artifice there is that you can't talk or communicate in any way when you're trying to play down your cards. But it's so small that it's not having the same uh, the same impact on the player and the decisions they make that it does in a game like Keyflower and even just their experience of the game. It's weird in that like how this fits in in the mind because like you can play your card whenever you want. You know what I mean? So like there's nothing like preventing you from doing it. It's just like restricting you in some other way, which honestly feels to me like like kind of it is, I guess, mechanical artifice, but it's like it almost feels like mechanical artifice adjacent when you're talking about a game like the mind or like just one mm. where like a single rule like that is the whole entire yeah. game. I, I think I've got it, Jake. So mechanical artifice is about systems complexity and what you're getting at is that there's not systems complexity in a rule like in the mind you can't it is the system it is the system and also it's not a complex system right like it's a really straightforward simple thing and yes it's a barrier but it's not it's not um it's not something that you have to navigate it's it's something that you've like it's a it's a restriction that you are taking on yourself so that's where like it feels different in code names or in the mind to have that sort of restriction versus something like a restriction in Keyflower that's like, you must have done this to do this to do that. That's really different. Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense to me with, you know, highlighting that mechanical artifice. I'm scrolling back up to our, our definition. Uh, the, yeah, the number of systems between the player and what they want to do. Yeah. Right, exactly. It's just a single, a singular rule. And I think a singular rule does not create a system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All or right. it could create a system, but it's there's not interplay between systems. And yeah, yeah, I'm with yeah. you. Can we talk about, okay, it wouldn't be an episode of Decision Space if we didn't invoke this game. Can we talk about the Castles of Burgundy? Steffenfeld. Let's go, okay. Castles of Burgundy. Why don't you take this one? Says it's one of your favorite games ever. This is Jake just talking about one of, if not my favorite game of all time. So, I mean, the Castles of Burgundy, epic, famous, Euro classic, dry Euro game where you're trying to fill up your board with tiles. Um, so I think therein, it's a great sort of canvas for how mechanical artifice works because what you're ultimately like wanting to do in any given case, like, could not be more clear and in fact uh i think that's highlighted by the by uh the systems of the game that on your turn you're basically are always choosing between one of four actions Um, but then there's mechanical artifice overlaid atop that which makes it more difficult to take those actions so for example if i want to take a tile from the shared board to my personal board i have to use one of my two dice that I've rolled in order to take that action. And then I have to look at the dice values that I've rolled and compare that to the six different bays on the board where a die, where tiles are placed and available for me to take. I have to see, okay, are there any, if I have a five and a three, I'm looking at the five space and seeing if any of those tiles are ones I want. If I want one of the threes, I'm looking, you know, I'm looking at the threes, see if those tiles are what I want. Uh, maybe I choose one of those and I utilize the dice to take it, or maybe I want something that's close to that and I have to expend a worker in order to manipulate my die from a five to a six so I can take something out of the six bay. 
and you have similar systems on top of all the other uh, actions you might take. You know, if I want to place a tile, uh, it's not enough that I can just place a tile onto my board. I have to place that tile onto my board adjacent to other tiles I've already built. I have to place it onto a specific numbered slot, and I have to use the dice that I've rolled in order to take that action there as well. Uh, so I think those are like very clear cases of mechanical artifice, making it just more difficult for you to do what you want to do. I would personally put it in like more of like the medium category yeah. though, because in each of those cases, I think uh, the systems are so simple, right? And, and, and clear, I guess that there's slightly more mechanical artifice in placing a tile on your board than taking one. But when you take the example of taking a tile to your personal player board, you literally have just like one system of complexity to navigate, which is the dice phase. value. Yeah, and the dice yeah. value. I think that one thing that helps keep it medium rather than it being really high is the fact that this one core system of roll, you're going to start your turn by rolling dice and then everything kind of feeds into the the values that you get helps keep it lower because you don't have a second system coming in and layering too much complexity over that system itself, right? Like it's a good example of a game with a lot of mechanical artifice built around one system. And I think that that's what I really like about the game. And then you also, we talked about these examples where games will come in and they'll have this sort of like medium to high level of mechanical artifice, but leave room within the system for players to reduce that. And in the Castles of Burgundy, you get this resource management system around workers that you can use to change the value of your dice. So you see that the, these zero designers building in outlets that let you sort of uh, go around, break down the walls of mechanical artifice, maybe for a decision or maybe for a turn in a way that's like, oh, thank goodness, I can just do what I want to do this turn uh, in a way that like gives you a little bit of a break. So I think that that's another hallmark of games to have an element like that. You need to have some mechanical artifice, right? Like mm -hmm. if you're going to break the break the rules, there have to be these sort of like artificial rules to break. Um, so I, I really like this example and I, I think it's really interesting and useful. I think an an example of a, a game with almost no mechanical artifice, and I, I'm curious if you'll agree with this, Jake, that's not on this list, is Azul. So in Azul, uh, this is another example where like maybe before this conversation, I would have said, oh, one example of mechanical artifice is that you have to only play. So Azul is a game where you're, you have a personal player board that shows five different types of tiles, and you're trying to collect uh, these little tiles from a shared uh, pool uh, that everyone else is competing for. And when you add them to your board, you can only add them in the same spot uh, that matches with a color of those tiles. But almost in every case, like the restrictions that are in the game and what makes this a really exciting game are about navigating the, the shared desire for specific tiles and these interesting rules around drafting that make it such that when you, there's like all these different locations and you can only ever take one color of tile from a location. And then when you take them, all the rest go to a different spot. So this is a similar example to Emotep or Chess, where the game is about sort of navigating these player decisions and the consequences of the decisions you think other players will make rather than sort of navigating uh, complexity inherent in the system or the sort of uh, input randomness like in the castles of Burgundy that limit what you might be able to do in a turn. There's a little bit of that in Azul with what tiles come out at the beginning of a specific round, just like castles of Burgundy. Uh, but castles of Burgundy also adds the dice rolling. Uh, but I think it's fairly low mechanical artifice with Azul. Yeah, it's really, I think it's a great and interesting example because we've talked about how Azul and, uh, 
Castle of Burgundy. I don't know if we talked about it in the podcast. We've definitely talked about it in the Discord that these are like low-key twin games that have the exact same decision space shape. Uh, so it's interesting to think of them in this framework as games that have the same type of decision space, uh, but one has higher mechanical artifice and, and how that looks versus one with lower mechanical artifice. Um, I think I largely agree with that. And I think the distinction goes back to the fact that there's like in the castles of Burgundy, there are multiple systems interacting with each other, right? There's the system that governs taking tiles. There's the system that has to do with placing tiles. Uh, There's the system that has to do with goods. Uh, And they all kind of come overlap each other in that you have to use your dice on your turn in order to take any of those actions. Also, uh, there's more overlap around selling goods and getting uh, silver, which you can then use to take tiles uh, from a different market. Whereas if you think just about in Azul about taking tiles, like there is sort of some small amounts of like restriction there, right? You know, if you if you take four or you know, if you take four red tiles, but you only have space to put them in the bay that can fill up to two, um, that's a restriction that prevents you from like doing what you want to do, which is like use all those tiles onto your board. Um, but there's just the one governing system, I think, of like taking tiles that they don't. There's no like overlap, and therefore it feels like there's much less mechanical artifice there. Yeah, I think the rules get it closer to something like code names or just one, like one of those examples where that one core rule is so important, but it's not such a it's not so complex that it's about navigating that complexity. And the yeah. reason why you want to use those four tiles is you don't want the negative points, which is an incentive, but it's not a barrier, right? Like the negative points represent a penalty, but they don't right. represent you can, an you obstacle. Can no space for it. You could still take the four yep. red tiles. Exactly. So that's another example of like, there isn't a barrier yeah. there uh, yeah. that you have Where to in overcome. the castles of Burgundy, if you want something from the four bay to take Can't your personal it. board and you don't have the die or workers available, it's just no. Sorry. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Great. Okay. Can we do one more example? No, I think I'm out. Okay, let's call it. No, let's do one more. I was just kidding. (laughs) Okay, so this one, I think I wanted to pick your brain about entangled drafting mechanisms as being uh, inherently about mechanical artifice. So entangled drafting is this idea that we've seen a lot in more recent games. Uh, Like Cascadia is an example, is a, you know, won the Spilliars this year. And it's a game where you're trying to build your own little personal uh, version of Cascadia, where you're drafting habitat tiles and animal tiles to put onto those habitat tiles. On your turn, you have a simple decision where you are going to draft a pair of one habitat tile and one animal tile. But you can't mix and match. You're not just picking any habitat tile and any animal tile. You have this core restriction. You can spend a pine cone, which is a resource that you can get in the game, uh, to potentially be able to take two of a different thing. But I think it adds this level of really light mechanical artifice that you have to overcome. And then on top of this, layered over it, is another example of mechanical artifice in the game, which is that 
only certain animal tokens can go on certain habitat tiles. So you can't just take an animal tile and put it anywhere. You have to be mindful of, do I have a place to put this? And is it in a good place in terms of the scoring that can happen? So I don't think Cascadia is a high mechanical artifice game or a, or a heavy game, but I think it's a, it's a game, uh, a fairly light game with some degree of mechanical artifice over some of the examples that have none. Yeah, I would definitely, for for my money, I would put it in the low mechanical artifice. But I do think that, you know, any game that has a mechanism that's like, you can expend this to ignore a restriction, It's that is like cluing you in that there is mechanical artifice, right? Yeah. And Even so if it's like, like a modicum. Yeah, exactly. And so the pine cones here are very much equivalent to the workers in Castles of Burgundy, right? Yeah. Um. Yeah, I can expend a resource to get around the restrictions of this system. I think the reason it's so low, though, is because I guess you, you have two systems, right? You've got the the puzzle of, you know, the placing the landscape tiles and the puzzle of placing the animals. So it does fit that kind of uh, criteria. I think that we're learning about mechanical artifice in this conversation that it can't be just one singular system. And I have a thought to add to that. So in Cascadia, you have this like floating buffer, right? So you always have like, uh, you have three open habitat tiles at any given time, but on them, they could show between one and three animals. So you have between like uh, three and nine options, potentially of, of things, of locations you could put animals types of animals or you, you get what I'm saying. There's like some floating options and in that's, so that gives you some flexibility inherent in the system. So as an example, imagine the exact game that castles of Burgundy is Jake, except at the start of your first turn, uh, you roll six dice and then on your turn, you're going to pick two of those dice to use. And then every turn you roll two more dice or let's say that's a game that it has all the same systems, but because of your input, the mechanical artifice is less restrictive. So you would experience the mechanical artifice less in that system. Yeah, right. No, I think that makes sense. And I think, you know, as we come to the end of this conversation, I do think mechanical artifice as interpreted as sort of the impact of yeah mechanical artifice, like restrictions across like multiple systems or within multiple overlapping systems. I think that is helpful for, you know, explaining the feeling of a decision space. Um, but I'm really curious what other people are going to have to say on this topic. I mean, you know, I'm curious if people think like, okay, you guys are just defining rules over and over. Um, I'm also intrigued with the idea of like, how does this break from light to heavy mm -hmm. and maybe it's less than i thought like i I'm, i want people listening to this like to give me your best example of a light game with high mechanical artifice and a heavy game with low mechanical artifice I'm, I'm just curious you know if those exist um though i am com convinced that you know there can be varying degrees of mechanical artifice within the range of heavy you know, games. Yeah. Like you could have more or less within that, uh, or medium games or light games. Um, but I'm not sure that it goes as far as to say like 
this is a heavy game with no mechanical artifice, or this is a light game with high mechanical artifice. At least I can't, on off the top of my head, can't think of any. Yeah, so I would love to hear examples of that too. And just your feedback and thoughts on this episode, generally the idea, the idea of mechanical artifice that we covered. And there's some really good places that you could talk to us about this idea. You could follow the link in our show notes to our Discord. Uh, Discord is basically a chat room that you can access from your browser. Uh, so there's a decision space discord specifically. That's a community of 200 plus people who love talking about games and love listening to conversations about games, just like you. Uh, you could also write an email to us. There's an email form on our website, decisionspacepodcast.com. Jake and I would love to see it. Uh, and we love trying to respond to emails that we get there. Uh, we're both, I'm going to do a better job trying to check that email. And I know Jake has been checking it as well. Uh, and you could write to us on Twitter or board game geek. Uh, you could find our Twitter at decision SPA decision spa or on board game geek. Just, you know, for that one, search Google, uh, decision space BGG or decision space blog BGG, and you'll find really great places to engage with us. I always create a blog post on BoardGameGeek to correspond to our weekly episodes, and a comment there is a great place to share your thoughts on the episode. Sounds good. Uh, well, Brendan, thank you for the engaging conversation. Until next week, this is Decision Space signing off. Thanks, as always, to Hembry for our intro and outro song. We'll see you next week. Bye, y'all. All right, this is Jake and Brendan signing back on after closing out the episode because we were, you know, intrigued and sitting here talking about the topic and what games people might come up with that could fit the low uh, complexity, high mechanical artifice and high complexity and low mechanical artifice uh, and kind of a new thought sort of jumped to mind as we were really struggling to come up with that. Yeah. So I came at Jake with this example of Tigris and Euphrates as being a, a, a heavy game with low mechanical artifice potentially and innovation as being a lighter game with higher mechanical artifice. And Jake kind of rebuffed both of those ideas and then sort of posited this idea of what if, you know, we were like, then we sort of said, well, what is a light game? Is, is innovation even, a, is it light? Is it heavy? And then Jake had this idea of what if what we're actually talking about with mechanical artifice is what people are trying to get at when they're trying to call games light or heavy and why they typically trip up on categorizing games and why we have these differences is because what people are actually t meaning when they're talking about heavier games versus lighter games is the degree of mechanical artifice in them. Yeah, so that's our kind of final thought for you today and you know just really intrigued on dis a discussion of that to follow like is the scale of light to heavy actually a scale of mechanical artifice in games please give us your thoughts on that and yeah dying to dive in more into this conversation yeah respond awesome listener do it all right now we're really signing off okay okay bye for real bye <laughs>